Why don't we pray for me? Is that okay? Yes. Is that too selfish of a thing to say pray for me? We have had sewage and broken tires and leaking oil and every craziness. I spent the whole weekend in the hospital with Pop, who, praise God, is here. He's fine now. Uh, had it not been for Michelle's comic relief, I don't know how we would have survived it. All those crazy movies you watch, girl. Uh, but we're here. And you have to believe that when we are moving forward in the kingdom, there's going to be resistance. It's kind of an honor, really. You know? Uh, and don't worry. One will chase a thousand and two ten thousand. We're going to beat the enemy down. And isn't that fun as Christians? We get to beat somebody down? Yeah, we're going to beat the enemy down. So let's pray in this morning that God will have his way in here. Holy One, we're asking you that as we open our mouths, as I open my mouth this morning, Lord, that it would be led by your Spirit. Holy One, I don't have a framework that we must accomplish or a plan that must succeed in here this morning. My plan is to rely upon you. Lord, we invite you to move in new, exciting, and unexpected ways. Minister to us through your word. Holy One, we love you and we commit our ways to you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. You know, the creation speaks of his glory. Darren, you can start that. Uh, this morning is July 19th. It's 2009. Our message this morning is going to be called Limp Back. The creation speaks of God's glory. And this week, somebody quoted something to me that I just thought was humorous. And I'm sorry if you think preachers live in a world where this kind of stuff doesn't happen. But uh, I assure you, if you remove the division between clergy and lady, you will find just as much flaws on this side as that side. We're all regular folks being anointed by God for different things. And in seeing strengths and weaknesses in your pastor's lives, you should be encouraged about your own. The satanic movement to put a division between the body and the pastor and exalt pastors has robbed the church of the opportunity to see both good and bad in men's lives and learn to distinguish the difference. Having said that, obviously I'm not trying to preach something to you bad. I just want you to know that while hearing a quote from a movie, I got a message. <laughs> and uh, while some would say, oh, that originates in the mind of man, I'm going to alleviate you of any concerns about that. What came to me definitely is not of my own design. But it starts off kind of funny. If you've ever seen any of those Eddie Murphy, Nettie Professor movies, there's this one particular line in it. It says, you can walk over, but you're going to limp back. Somebody quoted that to me this week, and my mind began thinking about all the people that walked towards God and limped walking away. And I thought about it for a long time, and I began to pray. And this morning, I believe God gave me what I needed. And I, yeah, look, some are still back there going, I can't believe he would quote that movie. Is the movie bad? No. Okay, good. I'm all right then. Because uh, Lord knows I would never watch a movie that you would consider bad. Jennifer might. But I wouldn't. <laughs> I might be forced as her other half to sit with her. Turn with me to Romans 12. Matt actually poached the scripture this morning. That's good. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. I'm mostly concerned with these next few verses. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Have you ever seen something that had to conform to a pattern? My wife makes cookies. She makes them a lot. And 
she has these things that the kids like where she stamps into that dough a pattern, and the cookie looks just like the pattern afterwards. It's important to realize that there is a war going on in the heavenlies. Ephesians 2 teaches us that there's a prince of the power of the air, and he is at work in all who are disobedient. And he's trying to conform you to his pattern and his image, one that cannot submit to God, one that can't be pleasing, one that hates, one that uh, is vicious, one that is all the things that you know that the world is. There is pressure upon us regularly to conform to that. This is why you hear Christians say things like, boy, that'd make me want to lose my religion for a minute. What they're saying is, I feel very tempted to fall into the pattern that the world would do in this moment. Some have a regular uh, appetite for backsliding, where for this week they're just going to kind of take a break and fall into the pattern that the world has to offer them. This is when we fall into carnality. It's those moments where you handle with your own arm something that God has reserved for only his. And look at what this next verse says. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I want to submit to you today that there's a choice before every one of us in every situation. You will either be conformed to the world's image or you will be transformed by God. I am hoping with all of my heart, placing all of my trust in the fact that God's word is true and that in every situation there is no exception, no unique set of circumstances where I can put myself in that suddenly his word won't apply to me. That what needs to change is not my circumstances, it's not everything else it is simply me and my mind and my spirit. That if God's work, if his yeast, if his leaven will work through this lump of dough, he will set me right and then I can begin doing what the Jews call repairing the world. In Genesis 1.28, from the very beginning, man was given a job to subdue the entire earth. Unfortunately, he was not able even, able even to subdue his own desires. So the kingdom kind of works backwards. It starts as a principle inside you that says, I'm not Lord, he is. I'm going to do what he wants me to do. And then it begins to permeate your whole life. Well, how do you know whether a cookie is done? How do you know whether a brownie is done? It has to be touched by its maker. It has to be inspected. In some cases, I know when my wife makes brownies, she pierces it. And if some of it sticks to what's piercing it and comes out, it's not done yet. Right? Too much water left in the batter or whatever it is. I just like to eat them. I don't really even know how to make them. Turn with me then to Genesis 32. It's amazing. I stand before young married couples all over the time. And they'll come and say, hey, we need some counseling. And I say, well, I imagine that you are fighting about sex and you are fighting about money. And... Uh, if one of those two things was fine, probably so would the other. They look at me and say, wow, you are a prophet. No, not a prophet. We all just have the same kind of issues. Well, I can stand right here before you today and know, without being a prophet, that it is easy to become wounded. It is easy to set out and venture something for God and feel like you're in a place where he's letting you down. Or that you have zigged when you should have zagged and now you're so far off course you don't even know where God is in all of this. In fact, everybody who has ever set out to do something for God has experienced those moments, weeks, sometimes months. We've preached so much lately on a circumcised heart, so much lately on the death and resurrection of a vision because our king is preparing us for the trials. 
He's preparing us for the hardship so that it won't be as if something strange has happened to us. And I can feel in worship today that that's going on in people's lives. I can feel that. And I want to encourage you, don't become disillusioned. Now is the time to get alone with your king. Now is the time to seek his face. It really doesn't matter what they think on your left and your right. It really doesn't. What matters is that you have his approval. Joseph stood when all of his brothers turned their back on him. But he had the favor of the father. And he maintained it. He maintained it in in prisons and all kind of horrible situations. And in the end, God's vision was accomplished. You maintain what God has given you. Don't let anybody steal it from you. It is your pearl. It's that thing that you have sold everything else to obtain. God's calling in your life. Psalm 138 says that God will fulfill His purpose for you. I want to tell you that we're working today. We're teaching today so that you can perform out there the things you have practiced in here. But for that to happen, you need to get some sense of why God called you. And I want to tell you it is much bigger than He called you so that you would preach in Brazil one day. Or He called you so that you would do this. Now, those are all very specific events. Why are you alive right now? What should you be doing this moment? And husbands, I want to start with you and tell you ministry flows from your own home. You want to be a good pastor? Start with pastoring your family. You want to be a good evangelist? Start with your neighbors. You want to be a prophet? Start praying and prophesying over your children. Let ministry flow from your home. Your home is the center for everything that you will do for God. And if your home is out of order, it makes it very difficult to do much for God. So start getting it right there. Are you all with me in Genesis 32? In Genesis 32, I'm going to read you a story that many people take and they they twist it around to the point where you end up arguing over uh, things like, is this an angel or is it a Christophany? Is this a pre-incarnate picture of Jesus? Uh, did he really wrestle with God? Did he, was he dreaming? All of those things. And I think it misses the point. Theologians often do that. They take something that is meant to impact your life and they reduce it to an argument about Hebrew tenses of verbs that means nothing to anyone. When Jesus taught, when he walked with people, if he said something like, look, look, the kingdom of God is like yeast mixed into flour, you can be sure someone was mixing yeast into flour. He taught in a way that was meant to impact people's lives, not dazzle and entertain their intellects. I just want you to see what you can glean from this today, rather than all of the mundane theological debates. I'm not interested in defining God's nature in such a way that we say, here are the 11 points that we believe. If you don't believe these things, you cannot be a part of our group, because this is the box we've designed for God. And if you don't think he fits in it, then you don't belong here. I'm not interested in those kind of things. Uh, My doctrinal statement is this word. Our pulpit, my life, is open for your examination, for your correction, for your encouragement. Bring me the word and we'll wrestle through it together. We'll work it out with fear and trembling. It's not that I don't believe some things are indisputable. Certainly they are. But they're plain enough from reading the word. I am not interested in giving you the security blanket that says, here's what you need to know, now you're good to go. I think that's ridiculous. Salvation is a lifelong growing process. And the more you venture for him, the more you must wrestle with him. So start with me in Genesis 32, verse 22. Tell me when you're there. There. You there, Mario? 
That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives. Boy, that's a message in itself. His two maid servants and his eleven sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all of his possessions. So Jacob was left alone. Before we read that next part, I want to contend with you this morning. I want to offer something before you this morning. So many times in our life, it is difficult for God to get us alone. We keep so many distractions around us that we give God 15 minutes in our planning. You know, when you drive down the road, there are billboards competing for your interest. Sitting right now in here, things are competing for your interest. Somebody walks by in the parking lot. A kid from the hair salon comes and looks in the window. Everything is working to keep you from being laid bare before the King of Kings. And the truth is, we get used to it being that way. We get used to the constant hum and busyness that is around around us, and it insulates us from something. It insulates us from that piercing voice of the Spirit that brings correction into our lives, that brings rebuke into our lives, and brings encouragement into our lives. But you need to understand, when Paul was speaking to Timothy, it was a two-third, one-third mix. He mostly corrects mostly rebukes and then encourages. Do you know why he mostly corrects and mostly rebukes? It's what we need the most. But we gather around ourselves people that just tell us, relax, you're a champion. And that's not a reflection on any ministry. That is a reflection on us, the listeners. We beg for it. We long for it. What we want are people to validate us the way that we are when the gospel declares, you must change. Not one time at an altar, but a lifelong process of change. Every day, the world is working to conform you to its image, and God's Spirit is working to transform you into His image. One is based on pressure from the outside in, and the other is working with subtle suggestion and empowerment from the inside out. They're distinctly opposite forces. So God has taken this man, and He has stripped away his relatives. He has stripped away all of his possessions so that he is left standing there with just him and God. I don't know whether you've been in that position. The first time it happened to me was 1993. I was in great turmoil because somebody began preaching in my life. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, shall enter my kingdom, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And I said, Lord, Lord, very well. I won the Bible awards in my high school. But in my heart, I knew there was no way I was doing His will. But for God to get me into a position where I was alone with Him, He sent my father to examine a school in the Northeast. He sent my mother to classes at LSU. My sister was living in a distant state at the time, and I was alone in the house. If any of those people had been there, somebody could have stood and said, You know, you know, Eric, it's all right, man. Do you remember when you walked that aisle? Do you remember you were baptized? Come on, you know Romans 9, 10, and 10. They could have insulated me from all of those things, but God stripped them all away so that I stood alone with Him. And then do you want to guess what He did with me? He told me I was wrong, correcting, rebuking, and encouraging. He began to show me the things in my life that must go, that simply have to go. They're inconsistent with His kingdom. Good things happen when people get alone before God. 
In Exodus 24, 2, you don't have to turn there. I rarely lie when I'm speaking about the Scripture. In Exodus 24, 2, God called Moses up on a mountain. And he said, look, Nadab and Abihu and um, Aaron can come with you. And then they got to a certain place. He said, only you can come this far. He brought Moses up to a place where he could dwell with God. And he dwelt with him for 40 days. It changed everything about Moses' life. It changed every detail about his life. It changed the direction of his future, but it required him to be alone. Keep your finger here and turn with me to Jeremiah 15. If you're new here, we do this. I'm sorry. We bounce around like an ADD child through the Scripture. But in the end, I believe that God will make it make sense to you. Jeremiah 15 We'll start in verse 11. The Lord said, Surely I will deliver you for a good purpose. Surely I will make your enemies plead with you. In times of disaster and in times of distress, can a man break iron, iron from the north or bronze? Your wealth and your treasures I will give as plunder without charge because of all your sins throughout your country. I will enslave you to your enemies in a land you do not know. For my anger will kindle a fire that will burn against you. You understand, O Lord, remember me and care for me. Avenge me on my persecutors. You are long-suffering. Do not take me away. Think of how I suffer reproach for your sake. When your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight, for I bear your name, O Lord God Almighty. I want you to hear this for a second. Jeremiah is realizing that he is going to be carried away in the Babylonian captivity. He's been standing and preaching that it was going to happen, but he's realizing it's going to happen to him too. He said, come on now. I ate your word. I did what you told me to do. And this is going to happen to me too? I never sat in the company of revelers, nor made merry with them. I sat alone because your hand was upon me. He was spending time alone with God. That's how he got these messages. And you filled me with indignation. Why is my pain unending and my wound grievous and incurable? Will you be to me a deceptive brook like a spring that fails? Isn't that the question when people go get alone with God and he begins dealing with them in a situation where maybe he stripped your job away? Maybe your relatives are standing at a distance from you. Maybe those who you thought would support you in your life's calling are now standing back and probably think that you're a little bit stupid or crazy or foolish. Are you standing there wondering whether God's intentions for you are still good? Wondering, am I really going to have to suffer through this? But I, I'm your man, God. Are, are you kidding? Therefore, this is what the Lord says. If you repent, I will restore you that you may serve me. Boy, when you read something like that, you go, oh, well, Jeremiah must have had deep sin. Well, point it out, friends. Point it out. He was just a man, just like you and me. There's no grievous sin that he's just committed. And yet, his direction is slightly off where God wants it to be. So God speaks to him and says, you change your direction. Remember, I'm God, not you. And he begins to deal with him. What was God's will for him? To go into Babylon with these people. Hmm. If you repent, I will restore you, that you may serve me. If you utter worthy, worthy and not worthless words. What does that mean God thought about their previous conversation? I know, the hippies told us, God is love. My father was love too, and he tanned 
my backside regularly. I feared him. I respected him, loved him, and feared him. A right view of God involves all of those things. If you think he is some big genie in the sky, Santa Claus, that grants your wishes, you are sorely mistaken. If you view him as vengeful and angry and waiting to crush you, you are sorely mistaken. He's trying to keep you from being conformed to the world's pattern. He wants you to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You will be my spokesman. Let this people turn to you, but you must not turn to them. I will make you a wall to this people, a fortified wall of bronze. They will fight against you, but will not overcome you. For I am with you to rescue you and save you, declares the Lord. You can go back to Genesis. My point is, is when people get alone before God, amazing things happen. But he takes you to a place in your calling. He takes you to a place in your life where you feel like it is just you and him. And nobody else really cares. Nobody else is standing with you. Maybe those you thought would support you are simply not. Truth is, this is not just one time in your life. It's a cycle that happens. How else can he really know whether or not you trust him? You know, I have a child that I taught to ride a bike. I actually have several that I taught to ride bikes, but my first one was quite the experience. He wanted his training wheels off because he believed he could do it until I took his training wheels off. Then he didn't want to ride his bike. So I made it. And he rode for a little while, thought he could do it, and then he fell. And he didn't want to ride his bike anymore. We're exactly the same way. We believe the Lord, and we trust him until we feel like the training wheels are off. We believe he'll provide for us. Oh, the Lord is my provision. Yahweh, Yireh, Jehovah, Jireh. Woo! What's that, a bill? Oh, my God, how are we going to pay it? <laughs> you know, we dig up and doubt the things that we sow in faith, and this happens. And the Lord has got to strip away some of the outward influences so that we can stand before him and take a sober judgment of our lives. You would never think that your relatives insulate you, but they do. You would never think that your closest friends insulate you, but they do. We will gather around ourselves the opinions that we like the most rather than the ones we need the most. Mm. This is why you have an innate desire to pick up the phone when you should be taking it to the throne. Right. We like to build consensus that says one thing. I am right. <laughs> That's what we like. And all of the gospel is pointing at something. You are not capable of getting it right except for his spirit in you. Mm. Not capable of it. There's all this pressure on you constantly to conform to the world's image. And God is subtly suggesting you need to transform into his. He sent over all of his possessions. This is Genesis 32, 24. So Jacob was left alone. By the way, if you want to see another alone scripture, I thought about it this morning. Daniel 10, verse 8. He'd been praying for 21 days. And an angel shows up and says, I heard you, man. I heard you when you prayed. I was sent. I mean, I came, but I was resisted. I always think about that. What if he had quit praying? What if he had been a pansy, like so many of us, and he had given up on the second day, third day, fourth day? How many of you order at one window with God and expect to pick up at the next? Lord, I need you to bless me. Where is it? When all of our faith is based upon men who waited decades, and some never saw it in their lifetime, and yet they considered him faithful and did not waver through unbelief. How about that? Do we really think God owes us an explanation? That's worth, that's worth asking. Does the, potter, does the clay really have the right to say to the potter, what are you doing with me, man? Mm -hmm. Go read those references sometimes. You'll find it's amazing. 
So in Daniel 10, uh, verse 8, he said he was left there alone by the river. But this is when his whole life began to change too. Amazing things happened there. Pick up with me in 24, 32, 24. So Jacob was left alone. A man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Mm. Jacob said, Please tell me your name. But he replied, Why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. As we began to look at this, and I read through it because I wanted you to get it before we, we break it up, I want you to look at some of the actions that God does. Because I'm convinced that in this body He is drawing some of us into a place, if not all of us, where these same actions can be applicable in our life. The first one I want to talk to you about is obviously that He isolated him. He made him feel alone. Then second, He began to wrestle with him. Turn with me to Psalm 33. Keep your finger here. Interesting thing, this wrestling. Cassidy's there. A couple of you are there. Where's everybody else? Psalm 33. We'll do what they tell you not to do. We're going to read the whole thing. Right? Y'all want the cliff notes as little of Jesus as you can get? Or would you like the whole thing? There are lots of churches to choose from on this road. I'm proud of you for walking into a storefront. Sing joyfully to Yahweh your righteousness. It is fitting for the upright to praise him. Praise the Lord with the heart. Make music to him on the ten-string lyre. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully and shout for joy. For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. While we're thinking about this on verse 4, I just want to ask you, how do you know he's faithful and true and right in all he does? How do you write something like that in a song or psalm that becomes the word of God if you have no personal experience with it. For you to say the Lord is faithful and true, He is right in all He does, evidently you had to be put into positions where you weren't sure He was handling you rightly. You weren't sure that He was being faithful to you, but now you had had a little time to look back and say, Oh my God, He is amazing. Look what He did. Well, let me ask you something. The man that wrote this, was he ever put in positions like that? Maybe anointed as a king, as a small boy, but had to fight for his life. And every time he seemed to fight back against his persecutors, God rebuked him for it. But God's promises to him came about, didn't they? In fact, the more adversity there was in David's life, the more refining you see, the safer he seemed to be. You know, when bears and lions were attacking his sheep, he went after them, struck them down, and got a sheep back. But when he had no bears and lions in his life... He found time to hang out on the rooftop. Amazing things happened there. But he could look back upon his life and say, I'm telling you, the Lord is faithful in all he does. I want to encourage you this morning, no matter how strange your situation looks, no matter how much it looks like God's people have let you down, or God has let you down, 
He is faithful in all he does. I want to also ask you to do something. Take a serious look inside yourself and see whether you're charging him with blame, him with wrong, to avoid exposing your own sinful actions. Charismatic Christians are the worst, and I'll say that because I'm in that group. Also, if I'm hanging out with Pentecostal people, I'll be Pentecostal because I believe in that experience. If I'm hanging out with Baptist people, that day I am Baptist because I believe in baptism. If I'm hanging out with Methodists, then I am Methodist that day because I believe there is a method to this salvation. I don't claim allegiance to any of those groups, and I take no particular pride in any one. The Word of God says do not break up into these groups. It says do not do it. None of them were crucified for you. Now, if you all worship in those churches, praise God. Even non-denominational has become its own little grouping. I just want you to know it is not my intention to do that. We're not creating followers of Eric, followers of a particular way. We're trying with all of our heart to create followers of Jesus. I forgot what I was thinking about that. Let's read this. Psalm 33, 5. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. That sounds like a pretty big God, huh? Maybe bigger than you. Isn't that good? You know, when Jews see a scripture they don't understand, there's a particular blessing that they pray. I say, thank you, Lord God, that I do not yet understand the meaning of this verse, for I know you shall surely reveal it to me. And they take a certain sense of awe in the mystery that is God. We want to define very linearly, very logically, what God is. We constantly want to shove him into a mathematic formula. I am telling you, he is bigger than you. And if you don't understand his workings in your life, that is okay. Just do what he tells you to do. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. I want you to understand our God is not a windshield wiper. He does not change his mind based on your circumstances. I watched lots of people rally to an abortion rally. And look. I could not be any more against murder of any kind, and in my heart I am convinced abortion is murder. I don't march in the rallies for lots of reasons that have to do with me and Jesus and what I can handle. But I watch lots of people rally to an abortion rally because it was God's will. But when it rained that day, most went home. Our king is not a windshield wiper that changes his mind. If he told you something... He did not change his mind on Friday because it became difficult on Thursday, I promise. We need to be very careful. This is what I was going to tell you a little while ago. As charismatic Christians who believe we hear from the Lord, to not lay blame at the feet of the Lord to hide our own fickleness. Well, the Lord told me to do this and this and this. Really? And it hadn't turned out well, and now you're upset. Are you sure the Lord told you to do it? Or did you follow your own imagination, get what you wanted, and are now reaping the benefit of it? When the Lord tells you to do something, there is no guarantee that it will not be difficult. The guarantee is just the opposite. It will be. But not everything you imagine is the Lord. If you're a single woman in this church, I love you very much. You need to gather around you people who are wise. 
and you would be wise to help to get help in making life's most difficult decisions and the reason that I tell you that is none of us were meant to function in a vacuum and I've heard some of the craziest things in my life come from people who are standing in positions that they were never meant to carry saddled with children and no husband and hearing this or that or this or the other and no wonder the world thinks we're crazy God never intended us to have schizophrenic walks he did not if you are a man who is not perfectly submitted to Jesus, you need to go find help. You need to get submitted to Jesus in a local church. None of you are islands. So, but what about Paul? Well, we'll talk about Paul after you've spent the 14 years in the Arabian desert and after you've seen him several times. We'll talk about him. And I will contend that he still submitted himself to other godly men. Maybe we should pick back up here. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. We read that. Look at verse 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he chose for his inheritance. From heaven, the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. Now, all kind of leaves out none, right? Yeah. All's not just a dishwashing detergent. It's not that at all, is it? It's a clothes washing detergent. I've only seen and heard that that can be done. I have no personal experience with it. From heaven, he looks down and sees all mankind. What does that mean? It means that he sees you. From his dwelling place, he watches all who live on the earth. He who forms the hearts of all. It did not say formed. It did not say, oh, God formed Mario's heart. God formed Heath's heart. It doesn't say that. It says he is forming. He forms the heart. Well, how does he do such a thing? By the way, heart in Hebrew is leave. It's one of the first word studies I ever did. I was 18. And uh, in my Bible that the crackhead stole that I told you all about, uh, I have it all written there. But leave means the very center of a human being. The Greek cognate for it is a cardo, and it's what they called their streets. Whatever the main drag was, like I lived in a town that had a main drag, right? Small enough town that it just had one. All the teenagers go to that one, right? That's called a cardo. It's where we get the word cardiology from, the study of the center of a human being. It does not mean this thing that is beating in here. It means that God is forming you in the center of who you are. The world is working to conform you. Jesus is working to transform you. How does he do it? Who considers everything they do. He forms the hearts of all and considers everything they do. I want to submit to you the idea that God put you alone with him. He put you in a position where you must wrestle with him because he considers with your every move as he applies pressure to you, as he moves you around, he considers what is in your heart and he begins to form it. Now, I know some of us come from the school of thought, well, God knows everything. God has the means to find out everything. Turn with me to Genesis 18. Genesis 18, I'm going to read to you verse 20. If you don't want to turn there, it's okay. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, and their sin so grievous, that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached my ears. I will know it. What? He's watching all mankind. He's considering all they do, and when necessary, he shows up in their midst to see if what he has been hearing is as bad as as what he's been hearing. 
say, well, that's just an isolated scripture. How about Deuteronomy 8, 2? It says, I caused you, I humbled you to feed you manna in order to know what was in your heart. If you didn't like that one, maybe Genesis 22, 12. He says, now I know that you love me because you have not withheld your son, your one and only son. We've gathered around as theologians to say, he knows what you're going to do before you do it. We've gathered around ourselves, people say, he knows everything that's in your heart before you do anything. That makes it great because it alleviates us of having to do anything. Whatever I do, he knew I was going to do it. I'm not arguing for a smaller God. I'm certainly not. What I am telling you is that he moves in your life intimately to examine where you're at, to put pressure on you in certain areas to form your heart. This is why David begins to cry out to God and he says, Create in me. Could he use two words? One was borrow, one was asa. One means to make from something, the other means to make out of nothing. Create in me, make out of nothing in me a clean heart, steadfast. David understood after being put in different positions that there wasn't much there to work with and he needed to start again. That is salvation, friends. So, but David was saved many years before that. If you are not being saved every day, something is wrong with you. Salvation is spoken of in the past in that it started with a birthing. Right? But we don't speak of the day of my birth as every day of my life. Yes, I was born at a given point, but I live every day. I was saved. I am being saved. And I will yet be saved. This is a process. Why did we make it an event? That's right. Because we want to be done. Give me the minimum. God will isolate you. He will put you in a position where you must wrestle with Him. By the way, about God seeing and knowing, and I didn't intend to do this today, but I just want you to know, why is every heavenly creature covered with eyes? Because He is watching. He is watching. He has the means to find out anything He wants to know. He's not limited in resources at all. But when He wants to know what is in His heart, when He wants to know what's in Paul's heart, he puts them in a situation. Say, so, well, he's just doing that to reveal it to me. It does do that too. But I can show you about seven places in Scripture where he does it to a human being and he says he knows something about it because he did it. That makes there be a rhyme and a reason, a purpose for some of our struggles in our life. You're examining me, Lord. That's right. To somebody who has been given something, they must prove faithful. Well, how do I prove faithful? must be tried. I must be tested. My faith must mature. There must be a perseverance of character that is growing in me. And when I have passed the test, what happens? Luke 12, 48 says, He who has given much, much will be required. But the entire parable teaches that when you do what is right, you get more. Great, Lord. More struggle? More proving faithful? More trials? This is the kind of God that saves a human being and says, Come unto me and I will show you what you must suffer for my name. See, the American gospel has said, Jesus will do for you, Allison. Jesus will do for you. He'll do for you, Angie. He will do for you. He will do for you. And we have left out what you must do for Jesus. The king does not come to serve you all of the time. That has already happened. He's already walked in our head, broken open a way where there was no way and led us out of captivity. Now he is to be served by us. You remember the parables. Which of you who has a servant, after he has done this and that, would come in? What is he supposed to say? 
I'm an unworthy servant. I've only done what you requested. We do not have the right to look at God and charge Him with blame because we don't like the way things are going. Instead, we say, Lord, what are you trying to form in my heart? I'm wrestling with you now. I'm here left alone and I'm wrestling. Well, how do we wrestle? The wrestle is the difference between being conformed to the world and being transformed by God. And the wrestling match is much like a physical wrestling match. At times, you're on top of it going, yeah. man, I'm going to beat you down. And then, uh-oh, what's that? Gracie Jiu-Jitsu is being employed and my pinky has now become the object that is choking me to death. How did that happen? Have you never been in a place with God where you felt on top of the world only to have found you just did something you never should have done? Yeah. I feel like Elijah. I have called down fire from the heavens and then went and hid from one woman under a tree. <laughs> Y'all didn't know the woman. I was talking about Elijah, not mine. That's the wrestling match. But something happens. You learn about your God through that. And I want to tell you something else, saints. He learns about you. He learns about you. Now, I know that goes against some people's grain. Forgive me for my theological ignorance. It's just a simple man that is reading the word, and it's the conclusion I came to. So turn with me again to Genesis. Back to Genesis. One of the things that we see in this scenario is that God wrestled with a man. In this struggle, in this interaction, something is being formed. Look at what happens in verse 25. When the man saw that he could not overpower him. God sees something. In the wrestling, he sees. He understands you through experiencing you. There are a billion scriptures that speak about this. Jesus being acquainted with our weaknesses because he himself was made to suffer. See, in your struggle with God, he gets to see in the sense that he experiences you. He watches those heart-wrenching decisions that you got right and the ones that you got wrong. On the question of free will, without quoting all of the different scholars through the years, you have the right to either stop at that red light at the end of this road or not. You have free will to do it. I bet you could go through the church, through the people that you know, and say who is most likely to stop and who is least likely to stop, couldn't you? Adam in here? Good. You kind of know that, don't you? Given a certain situation, the light is now yellow. Who is most likely to hit the accelerator? Who is most likely to hit the brake? We know that about each other. What do you think God knows about you? He's been wrestling with you and people like you for a very, very long time. This is why it appears... As if everything has been predetermined, he is a pretty smart fellow. Without limit, really. And he's ordered your footsteps. He has a plan for every nation. He has a plan for you. He's trying to transform your life so that you can walk in it. Don't kick against the goats. Don't fight against that. Let him see you. Somebody wants to find intimacy as into me see. It's through this wrestling process you become intimate with God. And he becomes intimate with you. And friends, part of it is not, Oh, Gabe, I love you, man. You're the champion. It is Gabe on his knees before God saying, Lord, I'm sorry. That is part of intimacy. I grew up in a place where athletes were 
uh, treated like demagogues. Uh, we used to call, when I got born again, the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, which is a good thing, the Fellowship of Carnal Athletes. And we did that because people's achievements playing a ridiculous child's game earned them status in the kingdom of God, even if they weren't holy. And that was the particular failing of the group I was a part of, not all groups. I even remember paying $100 a plate to go hear a famous basketball coach on a Sunday morning and a Saturday night. He was thrown out of the game for throwing his chair on the floor and cussing out the referee. But he was the featured speaker at the largest church in my city. Hmm. wonder how that works. I want to tell you, saints, that the king of kings wants to wrestle with you so that he can see what's in your life, so that you can see deeply into him. And on this note of athletes, the man that I admire most in this world happens to be sitting in this church. Very accomplished athlete. Has to keep his rings in a box. He's got so many of them. From coaching, from playing, from all of those things. And the quote I remember most was athletics did not teach me what a great man I was. It taught me all of the things that were wrong with me. I remember every time I lined up and did not want to go one more play, and no one knew it. I remember the times that I was beaten before I began because I was scared. Those things. Friends, wrestling with God is much like that. To everyone else, it looks like, oh, yes, he overcame me, did great. But you know that except for the grace of God, you wouldn't even survive it because you know you wanted to quit. Nobody saw it. You know that you were horrified, but you heard an encouraging voice in your ear say you can do it. You know those things. This is what that's meant to do. So not only did he get isolated with God, and it allowed God to see him, but the important part comes. It's verse 25. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. God wrestles. God sees. And God touches. Friends, there are shows on TV called Touch with an Angel that come on the Christmas card channel or whatever it is. Hallmark channel. When you have been touched by God, you know what? It is not always a warm, fuzzy experience. Touched by God is the circumcision of your heart. It's what we preached about last week. Touched by God leaves you intimately acquainted with where your weaknesses are so that his strength can be perfected in them. Keep your finger here. Turn with me to Romans 8. We're going to take a tour through the New Testament. You only got a few more minutes to bear with me. Right? Yeah. Yeah. The door's open, but if you get up and leave, we'll all laugh about you and talk about you after you're gone. Romans 8. I was in a small church and a lady got up during a critical moment in the, the sermon. The pastor said, hey, where are you going? She turned beet red and then we all realized that was the direction the bathrooms were. You know? <laughs> Romans 8? Yeah. Look at 26. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our great strength when we do not know what we ought to pray for. Yeah. No. When does the Spirit help you? In your weakness. He intercedes for you. How about that? Turn with me to Corinthians 2. It'll be to the right in your Bibles. How easy is that? In Corinthians 2, look at verse 3. I came to you in weakness and fear 
and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Apparently, God wants to touch us in a way that robs us of our own strength and power so that we can rely on His. And people don't get confused. Because nobody has a tendency to want to separate one man from others, lift him higher than he should be, and act as if he is a different class of human being, way above us. We don't put funny pointed hats on them and let them drive around in unique cars, kissing their rings. Yeah? That does happen sometimes, that kind of thing. And not just in the Roman part of the world. It happens all over the place, doesn't it? People take pride in their churches and their pastors like you do high schools. Mine's better than yours. You know, you already hear how our pastor delivers the word. The kingdom's message is not supposed to rest on a man's abilities, his wise and persuasive words. I guarantee you, after Jacob got through wrestling with God, he carried with him in his flesh all the days of his life a physical reminder that he was weak. Isn't that an odd thing since he had overcome? We overcome by acknowledging our weaknesses and letting his strength move in us. That's how that works. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 12. Maybe the most famous weakness passage of all. Second Corinthians 12. Start with me in verse 5. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain so that no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. Grace. These are those times you do not measure up and you know it, but God counts it as if you do. Unmerited favor. Well, how do you find that out? You have to be wrestling with him. You have to be touched by him in a way that leaves you knowing you're not good just like you are. You need to change, be transformed. Too much of you still is conformed to the world's image instead of transformed into his image. I get nervous when I'm around people and they tell me they hear from God and everything that God speaks to them is that they're glorious, they're wonderful. I get very nervous about that because I myself spend some time on my face before Him and that's not what He tells me. Maybe I'm just unique. Or maybe the King of the universe is the righteous standard and He demands that you be changed. Not a real popular message, huh? I bet we could have a gymnasium if we would just change it. Nothing's wrong with gymnasiums, friends. But if you use certain kind of bait, you catch certain kind of fish. And what I want are those who want to be transformed into his image and to hell with the cost. And I literally mean that. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. None of us want to be weak. None of us are going to fight to be weak. But God will isolate you. He will cause you to struggle with the things that he's told you to do. He will say, I want you to go to thus and so or thus and such a place. 
and do this or that, and you do it, and you know what? It seems to be failing all around you. Let me ask you, how do you define success? Is success when you do something and it turns out wonderfully? Or is success simply when you're obedient to what he tells you? Elijah shut up the heavens. The heavens answered him by fire and by water, all in the time period of seven years. He put to death all of those prophets of Astra and Baal. And he preached a message before Israel. How long will you waver between two opinions? Pick a side and get on it. Wouldn't you say that's success? He didn't like the results and went and hid under a tree and wanted to die. The success is in doing what he said to do. The results are up to him. One plants, one waters. Who gets the increase? So God told you to sell everything you have, to move to another state and to minister to some people, and you don't see fruit on the tree. Did he promise you you would see fruit on the tree? Or did he simply tell you to do it? Saints, it is a blessing when you get to see some fruit of your labor, but you're not guaranteed it. How about our father Abraham? Did he live to see Jesus? He didn't. He had to see him through shadow and type, through Isaac. In fact, it was revealed to those men that they were not serving themselves, but serving us, a generation that was yet to be born. Your actions, your obedience, the things that God tells you to do are not necessarily measured by what you see around you. In fact, I would say they rarely are. It is the conforming of the world that says there must be this rate of church growth. You must be in this size building. You must have this amount of money. You must have a... That's the world. The kingdom of God is not concerned with such things. And never has been. So, oh, but people people in, in moves of God experience these things. Well, sure, we can. How do you define the success of Jesus' ministry? It changed the entire world. One of the people he picked was the devil. The other 11 were often fickle. Did that make Jesus a failure? He laid down his life for one reason, that the world would learn that he loved the Father and did exactly what the Father told him to do. I'm encouraging you that God put you in a position to wrestle so that he can see and so that you can see what is in you. He doesn't just wrestle with you. He doesn't just see you. He touches you. This ought to leave you acquainted with mercy. It ought to leave you acquainted with your own weakness. And friends, you cannot go minister to somebody acquainted with your own weakness and be overly judgmental and harsh to it towards them. See, if you're acquainted with how much mercy you've been shown, I cannot go choke Casey. If God has just forgiven me over and over and over and I know it, how am I going to go choke Casey when I'm ministering to him? So, so does God make me sin? No, he wrestles with you. He touches you so that you're familiar with your own weakness. The overcoming, by the way, is not overcoming God. That's a ridiculous interpretation. It's in the struggle you overcame the struggle. Nobody overcomes God. Are you kidding me? You overcame the process because you were being transformed by it. You want to overcome? I do. God talks with us in this process. You might not like what he has to say, but he does talk with us during the process. He did four times in this one passage. What is your name? The man asked him. Do you know what that is in Hebrew? It's asking what his shem is or hashem. It doesn't just mean name. It doesn't mean what do people call you. It means what's your function? What's your character? What's your body of work? 
When we say in the name of Jesus, this is not abracadabra. His name is not even Jesus. It's Yeshua. If you're from northern Israel, it's Yeshu. It is what is your name? What is your function? What is your purpose? When you wrestle with God, it forces you to come to that conclusion. Lord, what is it that you want of me? Every way I turn, I feel him dead. I feel like I'm being beaten here. Tortured. What is it that you want from me? What is my function? Jacob, he answered. You've heard all of those sermons before. It's probably too harsh to say Jacob means deceiver, but it certainly means somebody who struggles for his own purposes. Are you surprised to find out that Jacob did not have his function correct? God didn't call him to be that. What did he call him to be? The man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. I have called you to function as a prince with God. Friends, it's in this struggling when you become aware of your weakness from wrestling with God, you're touched by Him, that you can then stand and say, Lord, you're right. This whole area of my heart needs to get cut off right here. I don't know how to do it. I guess I'm just destined for garbage. He says, no, no, no. I have got good things for you. You will be a prince with me. Come on now. You're going to have a new walk before me. Something will change today. Make a new start. Move forward. Trust me. Do you think he had to trust God more or less after he had a wrenched hip socket? Probably a little more. He was already here because he scared his brother was going to whip up on him. That's why he's there. That's why he's out there. He's, he's <laughs> the mighty patriarch Jacob has split his family into two groups so that if, if one group's killed, the other group might survive. And he has sent a procession of gifts to meet Esau before he gets there. All because he is terrified of his older brother. You think when he leaves this encounter with God, from a physical standpoint, he should be less afraid or more afraid? From a physical standpoint, he should be more afraid. But in that weakness, he found out something. You're not going to perish, Jacob. I have called you to be a prince with me. Lean a little less on your own walk. A little less on your own manipulation. A little less on your own striving. and Lean a little more on me. That's the purpose of wrestling with God. He changed his name. Saints, we're in the process of God changing our function, changing our reputations, changing our authority, our body of work. Most of us have dreamed too small. You thought God called you to rule Angleton or Bunky, Louisiana. You thought that he called you to this. And the truth is he wants more from you. He wants 30, 60, and 100 fold. He wants an increase out of your life. Ephesians 2 teaches us that he saved you. Yes, it was grace and not by works. But he saved you so that you would do the good works he prepared in advance for you to do. What are they? What are they? And what have you asked him for? Because it's immeasurably more than you could ask for or imagine. What are they? Wrestling with God causes you to find out what your new name, your new function is. By the way, in the kingdom, Jesus gives you all new names. You can read about that in the last book in this series. Best-selling series. 66 of them, each better than the one before. The last thing that he does with this man is he blesses him. I want to encourage you with this thought. I'm going to read you one more scripture after this, but with this thought. God is not doing anything to you that is not meant to bless you. Blessing you means transforming you. 
It means not allowing you to be conformed to the world's image. It might mean correcting, rebuking you, but it also means encouraging you. Would you rather walk with your own two feet, nice, tall, and strong, and not know your repentance with God? Or have a little limp, be familiar with your weakness, merciful to everybody around you, but know you're called to the highest station in the universe? Mm -hmm. The world is full of what I would call powerful weaklings. They are men who command respect by their positions, by their appearance, by the way they've allowed themselves to be lifted up. And they are weaklings in God's presence because they do not wrestle with Him. They don't allow Him to see into them and, and them to look into Him. They've never been touched in a way that let them know where their weaknesses were so they could minister in mercy. I would whole lot rather be powerful in His presence and weak in the world's eyes. This is how a man like Paul say, I can glory in my weaknesses. Turn with me to Hebrews 11. This will be our last scripture, so if you are seriously suffering with me, your suffering is about to come to an end. Glad y'all are there. I have to find it. Hebrews 11, verse 32. Walk over, limp back. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. By the way, each of these men at some point in their life isolated with God wrestled with him, learned things about themselves and about God, received new direction, new function, and became overcomers because they trusted him. Who through faith or trust conquered kingdoms and ministered justice and gained what was promised. Who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword. Whose weaknesses were turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. God did not use Moses at 40 years old in the height of his strength. He began to use him at 80 and finished with him at 120 when he thought he was weak. God did not use Samson in the height of his strength. He waited till his own actions had put out his eyes. And he said, Lord, just this one more time, would you do something through me? Humble, humility, broken. But all of them became a success in their weakness, not in their strength. If you feel as if God is humbling you, He's probably just teaching you how to become strong in Him. We do not do things the way the world does. We are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Saints, stand to your feet. We're going to pray together, and then you'll have another choice before you. You can choose to walk out the door the same way that you came in it, you can forget that you heard any of these things and say he's just one more crazy storefront pastor. But you can allow the word to penetrate your heart to produce change in you. You can begin to look with a certain amount of introspection saying, Lord, what areas in my life am I in need of a wrestling match with you? I want to overcome in this, Lord. I want to make it. Will you touch me? Nobody who has ever wrestled with God has left disappointed. It is to stumble on the stone rather than to be crushed by it. 
It is to lose your life that you might find it. It is all of those scriptural paradoxes. Saints, I encourage you to embrace him in that way. None of you will be disappointed. I want to tell you the truth. If you don't, the kingdom will not wait for you. The kingdom does not revolve around you. You cannot cross your arms in anger towards your parents or anyone else and blame God for life not being the way that you want it and think that the kingdom will wait for you. Every day you wait to get serious about God does the kingdom of God harm and he raises up people in your absence to do what you should have been doing and what you were designed to do. I'm encouraging you to stand up, find your function, and be who God's called you to be. Show courage. Show some strength. Admit your weakness and let God fill you with His power. Let's pray. Mighty, mighty one, Lord, we love you. Your word is piercing. We have eaten it, Lord God, and in some of our mouths it is sweet. In some of our stomachs it is bitter. I know that it is right and I'm asking that you would help me to personally apply it. Lord, I don't agree with everything that you do. And that makes you my Lord and me your servant. Teach me, mighty God, to be transformed by your word. Teach me, Holy One, to walk in trust to you. That it might go well with me and all those around me. I love you, Lord, and want your will to be done. And I pray that the same heart would be in these people. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. 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 All right. Get your kids. Get something to eat and fellowship.